0: This is a podcast from BBC Studios. BBC Studios. A commercial, a commercial
1: subsidiary
0: of the BBC.
2: Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices
0: We wanted to film the start of spring in Alaska. And Alaska is this incredible place. Like, it's so extreme. It's in the Arctic, a huge chunk of it. Hundreds and hundreds of kilometres of nothing. Sat in a hide, hours on end. You know, the wind's blowing underneath the tent. You're freezing. You don't move. You're staring at one point. It's quite a meditative process. Got to be pretty zen for however long it's going to be.
4: Welcome to the BBC Earth podcast the podcast that's learning how to adapt to extreme conditions. I'm Emily Knight.
0: We actually got a hot bath before we went out to the hides because we were heating our bones up and our whole body just so we had an extra hour where you could feel your feet because you just go completely numb. I mean, it was minus 33 at one point. I had four or five layers on legs and arms, but after a few hours it just goes. You just accept it. You're not going to feel your hands. You just wave goodbye to them and then you dread the, the moment at which the feeling comes back because it's, uh, it's pretty painful.
4: <laughs> in this episode, we're looking at adaptation in the natural world, at the way animals adapt to the extraordinary environments they live in, how they adapt to us, and how life finds a way in the most unlikely of places.
0: You look out over this permafrost tundra and it's just flat, just snow and ice, and you know underneath that ice is, it's full of wildlife. And is about to come to life. So, hello, um, my name is Joe Tuck, and I'm a natural history filmmaker, um, and I've been making films with wildlife for about a decade now. So, the animal that we went to film on the Alaska Tundra was the Arctic ground squirrel. It's the biggest of any ground squirrel in North America. Imagine kind of a grey squirrel that doesn't climb trees, a bit bigger, less bushy tail. These animals have been hibernating for upwards of seven months, eight months in some instances. So two-thirds of the year, they're basically asleep. And we want to be there as soon as they start coming above ground. They were going to basically live full life cycle in four months. Males emerge, then females emerge. They come up, they fight, they breed. Within a couple of months, you've got little pups running around all over the tundra. Babies grow, they become adults, and they are ready to breed within a month or so. And everyone fattens up, and then they go down and hibernate. Their whole life cycle happens in four months, which is just incredible. And obviously in the case of the Arctic ground squirrel, if you're not fat enough when you have to go down into hibernation. if you don't have enough fat, you die. A lot of them don't even wake up from hibernation, it's that extreme. They're very characterful. Um, you can't get quite attached to them. And they have this amazing uh, network of burrows so they can escape predators and then they'll go in one burrow and then come out another and you're running around chasing them, trying to film them because you're like, well, where are they going to pop up next? Little quirky eyes pop above the sort of frozen horizon and set off on their little circuits. I think the most interesting thing about what we were covering there is their extreme physiology. So Arctic ground squirrels, they are the record holder for any animal for lowest body temperature. Arctic ground squirrels are able to take their bodies down to minus three degrees Celsius. It's an insane thought. Their blood really should freeze, and then they should die. So there's something really interesting going on there. Their body slows right down. Their blood stops flowing, it thickens. Their body starts to waste away. Their brain starts to shrivel. They go into stasis. As they hibernate for eight months of the year, which is a huge amount of time, they have to wake up periodically So what they've evolved is this reanimation process. A little pilot light goes off in their back. So these brown fats in the back of the squirrel basically reanimate them by effectively heating from the centre of their back. There's a lot of mitochondria, the thing in your cells that makes energy, and it sort of warms up the whole animal. The problem is you're coming from minus one, two, three degrees Celsius, so there's a long way to go before all the muscles are warm enough to start contracting, shivering, and then the shivering, the contraction of all the muscles, brings them right up out of their stasis. We actually also filmed them in the University of Alaska Anchorage, and we worked with the university there to film research animals in burrows. When we trained the thermal camera right on that point, you could see almost this little pilot light come on, and it slowly etched and leached round the animal, and it's incredible just to watch it sort of drunk, dozy squirrels sort of trying to regain its consciousness. It was a pretty cool experience. Within a few hours, their brains have regrown all the stuff that they lost when they were hibernating the past few weeks, to the point where they actually grow more than they need. Their neural pathways are just huge. And after that few hours, their brain seems to settle down back to its original state. And within about half a day, their body slows down again and they sink back down into their hibernation. And that has to happen continually through the whole eight months that they spend hibernating. Because if they didn't, their brain would die, and, and then the animal wouldn't survive. Some scientists think there are insights into brain disease, so dementia, Alzheimer's, in the way that their brains regenerate every few weeks. There's particular parts of the brain, particular proteins that you see in dementia and Alzheimer's. These proteins are seen in Arctic ground squirrels, but they don't survive this amazing brain reanimation process they just get purged. I mean, they're able to completely remove them and if they can understand what's going on there, there's potentially answers for human treatment of dementia or Alzheimer's or something similar. So there's incredible processes going on in a a squirrel brain that they just don't understand. We need to do more research into it and hopefully we can revolutionise that part of medicine.
4: And the scientists researching the truly astonishing hibernation of the Arctic ground squirrel aren't only interested in the field of medicine... Perhaps, one day, this little rodent could help us explore the universe.
0: If we can understand how their bodies go into cryostasis and then reanimate, why can we not do the same thing in people? And one of the scientists I was speaking to, he mentioned that space travel is a difficult thing. And there are many challenges to space travel, obviously. If we were able to help people get through long times of space travel, by going into stasis, understanding how to treat the brain and the body through these long periods, theoretically, you could get people to Mars or further, I guess. Because you're effectively in stasis. You've slowed your metabolism right down. You're just using a baseline amount of energy just to get through. If we can reawaken ourselves every few weeks like an Arctic ground squirrel, and that allows our brains to, to not break down and keep them alive, And maybe it could allow space travel, who knows? I would be surprised because, I mean, how many millions of years of evolution has it taken to get amazing hibernators like the Arctic ground squirrel? But hey, who knows? You never know.
4: For many animals, one of the most important adaptations they can make is working out how best to become invisible. Prey animals need to blend into their surroundings, while hungry predators need to sneak up on them. All sorts of different camouflage strategies exist in nature spots and stripes, colour changing skin, or making yourself look exactly like the leaves and twigs you sit on. But this story is not about camouflage. This story is about an animal whose evolutionary journey has led them in the exact opposite direction. In the gloom of a nighttime forest, they don't hide, they sparkle in the dark. Like stars, they twinkle and
5: glow bioluminescence, which is a living thing glowing, that's what bioluminescence means, is found throughout the animal and plant kingdom. Sea pansies, ranillas, mushrooms, bacteria, click beetles, all sorts of underwater deep sea life glow. You have jellyfish, starfish, lanternfish, squids. So glowing in nature is not all that rare. I am Lynn Faust, and I live in Knoxville, Tennessee in the U.S., and I am known as the Lightning Bug Lady, so I am a firefly nerd. I am very lucky, having grown up in East Tennessee. We call them lightning bugs here, and we are surrounded by many species. Our farm alone has over 26 species. I was actually an adult before I realized not everyone grew up enjoying lightning bugs, chasing them when they were little, catching them, letting them go. So I took them for granted until I was an adult. The light show itself on a peak night, it just blows your socks off. It is so beautiful, it is so mesmerizing, and you are surrounded with pulsating lights, and it's so silent. I'm always amazed how quiet it is, because it's rhythmic and it's pounding, but there's no noise, there's no sound. Our oldest son had a friend, they all live in Wyoming, and he brought his little girls east one summer, because in his words, he said, fireflies are the closest thing to fairies and magic that there are, and he said, I want my little girls to see them. It's all about sex, it's all about love, it's all about finding a mate. Each little male firefly, as soon as it emerges as an adult, is genetically programmed to give a certain flash in a certain pattern at a certain rate. They're flying around hoping one of their females will see their beautiful flash and the female will answer back in a little flash different than the males. The glowing actually began with the larvae millions and millions of years ago. They would glow advertising that they tasted bad. Like, you might not want to eat me, you might not want to touch me because I can hurt you back. Then at some point, once that gene was in them, it evolved to become more of a mating courtship flash in the adults. They are born with an enzyme called luciferase and it combines with another thing called luciferin, and you notice both of them have the word lucifer in them, so they're named after the um, dark angel of light, lucifer. That's where those words come from, and it just means light. When they combine in the presence of oxygen, ATP, magnesium, and recently they found nitric oxide, you get the flash.
4: But some fireflies have gone one step further, taken their light show to a whole new level. After all, what's better than a bright light flashing seductively in the dark? How about 10,000 of them, all flashing together in perfect synchrony?
5: We really don't know the answer of why certain species are synchronous. They are genetically programmed, so it would happen over thousands, if not millions, of years to go from a regular flash to synchrony. Lots of things are synchronous in nature. Uh, Schools of fish or flocks of birds. Even turkeys gobbling will often gobble in synchrony. But even with the synchronous ones, the more you have, the better the synchrony. Our US synchronous species, or Photinus carolinus, is the one I'm talking about right now up in the Great Smoky Mountains. Their pattern is called a flash train. And it means they flash six times in rapid succession followed by six seconds of dark. And that repeats over and over and over again all night. They're all flashing those six flashes at the same time, and then the forest goes completely dark for six seconds. And then they all begin again. And so when do you think those females would answer? they answer halfway through the six seconds of dark. And so that six seconds of dark has a real function. That's when the males can see their little tiny flash that usually happens on the ground. There are displays that will absolutely knock your socks off that are not synchronous. You don't just need to see the synchronous ones to see something beautiful. We have one called the Chinese Lanterns. They will float just over the ground right as darkness falls, but they'll glow up to three seconds. They'll glow, and then it will go off, and then a few seconds later it will begin again. And uh, the first time we really noticed the beauty of this particular species, they were out over the water, so they were reflecting these lazy, beautiful glows, and it was mesmerizing. The heebie-jeebies that gather in trees, they don't flash in synchrony, but they just sparkle continuously. We've got bush babies, big Big dippers, spring treetop flash, shadow ghosts, the pink winkers, they flash very quickly. I have a favorite glider of my late mother-in-law's. You know what a glider is? It's not really a rocking chair, but it's this sort of wonderful thing that glides back and forth when you sit in it. And one of my happiest points of any day is after I fed the horses, I can hear them all eating, and I sit in the glider and I just watch the fireflies. So when the day comes where I can't tromp around the woods in the dark, I can get on that glider and still enjoy the lightning bugs.
4: You're listening to the BBC Earth podcast where we're looking at some of the ways animals adapt, their bodies and their behaviours, to meet the demands of the worlds they live in. Of course, one of the things a lot of animals have had to adapt to is humans. More than any other creature on Earth, we humans adapt our environment to suit us, rather than the other way round. We tear up the vegetation we can't use and plant things we like better in its place. We reroute rivers, build huge cities knock the tops of mountains off. The plants and animals caught in our disruptive slipstream have to make the best of the world we leave for them. Chris Thomas is a professor of biology at the University of York and author of Inheritors of the Earth.
2: There's a very widespread perception, which is by and large true, that nature was carrying along quite happily and then along came this human animal which was as a predator intelligent developed language and all the things that we then did has then somehow sort of destroyed nature removed it from its natural course and I'm all signed up for trying to save as much of the old nature that we have as possible but when you look around you Essentially, the entire planet's been completely perturbed by humans in multiple different ways. And so all the species that you see, the animals, the plants, the insects, whatever it might be, they're all things that have coped with the changes that have taken place around us. And when you start looking at the world in that way, you realise that actually, more or less everything has responded in some way to humanity, and quite a lot of the things around us are actually thriving, not just in spite of us, but because of the changes that we've made.
4: Think of the street-smart city pigeons that used to be wild rock doves. Think of the enterprising brown rat, which spread over the face of the entire globe by hitching lifts on human ships. There are lots of species like this, who thrive in the world we've created.
2: Whenever these cataclysmic effects which humans might now be one of them, have perturbed the biological world, then actually the organisms, the animals and plants and microbes that then repopulate the earth are the survivors. They are the things that coped. The mass extinctions of the past, the so-called Big Five extinctions, each of those has involved at least 75% and sometimes quite a lot more of the species that then existed to go extinct in one fell swoop. If humans carried on at the current rate of doing things and knocking species out, then we might well reach the point of such a mass extinction, but we're not quite there yet. Now, the converse of it is that humans are also precipitating an explosion in the rate at which new species are coming into existence. And one of the Easiest ways to see this is in the hybrids between different animal and plant species that are coming into existence. So, if we take monkey flowers in Scotland, these are rather lovely little sort of yellowy mimulus flowers that often grow in damp ground. And there was one such species that was imported from South America, another from North America, and they met in a British garden. And then they produced some hybrids between the two species. And the hybrids were sterile, but they could still grow. And these things started to grow along Scottish streams and ditches and so on in nice damp ground. Well, in time, there was a genetic rearrangement and the number of chromosomes in a plant doubled. Now, once the chromosomes doubled, it turned out that it converted this sterile hybrid into something that could now reproduce sexually. And once it was sexually reproducing, because it had doubled its chromosomes and no longer had the same number of chromosomes as either of its parents, it was completely genetically isolated. So we've now got a new monkey flower that only lives in Scotland on damp ditches. Whatever our attitudes to it might be, when we sum up species that have come into existence in the last few hundred years, we get about seven new plant species just in Britain that have come into existence. And that's actually larger than the total number of plant species that have been documented as going extinct in the whole of Europe for the last three centuries. One of the reasons that I often discuss what changes are taking place to the diversity of plants is because they are the bottom of the food chain. The more diversity of plants you've got, the more diversity of food you've got for spiders, birds, and also for diseases which kill insects. And of course the plants also construct the vegetation. We think of birds, some feed at the tips of branches, some down in the undergrowth and so on. In the long run, you end up with more different types of animal because there are more sorts of places to eat. So the fact that every country in the world, as far as we know, has had an increase in the number of plant species that live there over the last 300 years, sets the scene for potential very long-term increases in animal diversity as well.
4: There's no doubt we're causing a sixth mass extinction. But if we look through the lens of deep time, it's possible to see we're also bringing new species into existence, quicker than ever before.
2: I, like everyone else, don't like seeing the Amazon burning, don't like seeing major deforestation in some of the most species-rich parts of the planet. But ask me whether I think that the total diversity of life on Earth is going to decline in the very long run, then that's a much more difficult one to answer. And I think it's as likely as that humanity will increase long-term diversity as decrease it.
4: The natural world adapts to the things we do to it, adjusts to the new parameters we set. Thoughtless, reckless though we often are, nature perseveres. But are there limits? Have humans done anything so destructive that life simply can't find a way back.
0: It does now seem likely that sometime in the last couple of days there's been perhaps the worst accident in the short history of the world's nuclear power industry. The accident was at Chernobyl, a town of around 50,000 people, about 50 miles due north of Kiev. In
3: Ukraine. Reactor 4 was the one that exploded, and next door is the Reactor 3, which is a kind of mirror image of Reactor 4. They were built identically and so I've, I've been on the site in unit 3 a number of times and you sit in the chair of the, of the person that was in front of the buttons that control the control rods, in front of the what we call the red button that they tried to press to shut the reactor down at the time of the accident. It's a very em- emotional place to go and it's a place where you feel that suddenly what happened in this control room had consequences all over the world.
4: Jim Smith is a professor of environmental science at Portsmouth University. 30 years ago, he began studying the movement of the waves of radioactivity that the explosion set in motion.
3: In the UK, we got a small amount of fallout from Chernobyl, and that particularly affected the upland areas. So I would study where the radioactivity went in the Lake District in in northwest England, and I first went out to the affected areas in Ukraine and Belarus in 1994, and I've pretty much been studying it ever since.
4: Jim researches the long-term impacts of radioactive pollutants on the environment.
3: Most of the radioactivity in our environment is natural, so it comes from uranium, thorium, radioactive carbon, radioactive potassium, so all these natural elements that were formed when the Earth were formed, they're already in the environment. When we make a release of artificial radioactivity into the environment it's it's adding a very small amount to that but that doesn't mean it's, say it's not significant and certainly after chernobyl it was people obviously study mutation in the exclusion zone. So, so can we see genetic changes? Can we see subtle reproductive effects on animals? What we've got to first say is that mutation is nothing special to Chernobyl. You know, mutation is happening all the time, all our bodies, we're radioactive, we have other chemical mechanisms going on in our bodies that cause mutation. Mutation is happening all the time and it's part of nature. In the hotspots at Chernobyl, the study that I would say are, are a bit inconclusive, but there this, this seems to be a general trend that yes, there are increased mutation rates in some of the hotspots, which is probably less than 1-2% of the total area of the exclusion zone. But the effects are quite subtle and it's, it's really quite difficult to see those effects consistently in different species and in different studies. The picture, I believe, is that in general the ecosystem is thriving in that area, but there may be more subtle effects of radiation in the hotspots.
4: Despite what you may be expecting from a story set in a radioactive fallout zone, there are no three-eyed fish or mutated spider wolves here.
3: When the people left the exclusion zone, Ukrainian and Belarusian scientists noticed that the animals, it's fairly obvious when you think about it, the animals that are associated with human habitation, so pigeons, rats, sparrows, they declined in numbers and the numbers of wild species increased.
4: Three decades after the tragedy, in the heart of the exclusion zone, you can find a 100 of the most endangered species in Ukraine, including lynx, European bison, and wild horses. We know this partly thanks to the Belarusian scientists who've been keeping track of large mammals in the exclusion zone from around one year after the accident. They use helicopters and follow tracks in the snow to survey the area from all angles.
3: And this allows them to to get an estimate of the abundance of mammals within the exclusion zone.
4: Jim and his team used that data to research the impact of the nuclear accident on these species.
3: We looked at the amount of radioactivity on each of these tracks, so we worked out the radiation dose for the different tracks that were being studied to see if we could see differences in the mammal abundance between the more contaminated parts of the zone and the less contaminated parts, and we couldn't find any difference. We also compared the track counts in the Chernobyl exclusion zone with other nature reserves in Belarus, and for all of the large mammals we found similar mammal densities except for wolf and the wolf density was about seven times higher at Chernobyl than in the other nature reserves and that's not because radiation's good for wolves, it's, it's probably because there's less hunting pressure on wolves in the exclusion zone. On average I've probably gone a couple of times a year for the past 30 years so I've seen the, the zone evolve so for example the, the town of Pripyat which is the town next to the power station that was evacuated in the days after the accident. I remember going there in the 1990s and you could clearly see all the buildings and it still looked like a town. Now when I go back and and the many tourists that go there see a town in amongst the forest. So some of the even large apartment blocks you can hardly see for the trees that are there. So nature has really taken over in Pripyat. I would call it a nature reserve, different in the sense that it's kind of an abandoned nature reserve. And what, what's really interesting is to see, from a ecological conservation perspective, is how nature recovers when we stop messing around with it. And Chernobyl is a kind of giant experiment in that. And so we see, you know, there's former plantation forestry, there's former agricultural lands. All those are gradually being taken over by nature. It's an interesting view of what the earth would be like if we, if we all left. Nature, when given the opportunity, when given the habitat, will recover. And that's despite what I think is a relatively low radiation risk. But those effects are outweighed by the benefit to nature of removing humans from the equation. So removing the things that we do every day, which is build cities, build roads, chop down trees, hunt. The things that we do in our everyday lives is worse for the ecosystem than the radiation at Chernobyl.
4: You've been listening to the BBC Earth podcast. Stories were produced by me, Emily Knight, and Eliza Lomas. Sign up to our newsletter at bbcearth.com slash newsletter for a dose of animals, nature and science straight into your inbox. And join us next week, when we'll be pushing back the boundaries and paying a visit... some of the natural world's final frontiers.